Well, we are really excited to bring dinner parties back in October, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's an opportunity to gather in people's homes in smaller groups to eat some yummy food together and to connect in meaningful ways. We have to do life beyond the Sunday morning service if we're going to be the people that God's called us to be. And dinner parties is one way to do it. So many of you are newer to the church. Maybe you weren't here when we last did dinner parties. So before I jump into this morning's sermon, I want to let you know who the hosts are and how you can be involved. So we have two different nights in October where we will have dinner parties going on. Sunday night, October 3rd, and Sunday night, October 10th, 5 to 7 p.m. You will choose one home on one of the nights, not a home on each night, but one home on one of the nights to sign up for. And Sunday night, October 3rd. Here are the families that are hosting dinner parties, and every dinner party has its own theme, so I want you to hear this because, you know, it matters. The food matters, all right? Can I get an amen? The food matters. So, um, Jared and Jen Berry, who live in Liverpool right off of Sewell Road, they're hosting a dinner party at their house, and their theme is a chili bar. So October sounds like a great time to have some chili, and so you're going to have lots of different toppings and fun with them and their children and their little puppy. Uh, John and Polly Bowers also live in Liverpool off of Route 57, and they're hosting a dinner party on the same night. Their theme is soups, salads, and sandwiches. So a little healthier, little, uh, uh, but it'll be nice and yummy, so make sure that you sign up for them if you want to be with the Bowers. Karen and Andy Cross are hosting one. They also live in Liverpool. Their theme is Taco Sunday, so if you want to have some yummy tacos, that's your place to go. Pastors Jason and Vicki will be hosting a dinner party actually right out there in the cafe, and they're going to be having a theme called Around the World, which is international foods, which is like my favorite way to eat. And uh, Jason, I'm sure, will make something yummy that comes from Korea. So if you want to try that out, that's where you want to sign up. And then the fifth home that is open on the third are the Warbecks, Joshua and Leanne. They're beautiful kids. They live in DeWitt. So if you live a little bit down that way, this could be a good fit for you. But even if you don't, you can jump on 41 and be to them pretty quickly. And Josh and Leanne's theme is fall favorites. So a lot of room for interpretation there. I I envision lots of pumpkin-flavored food. So fall favorites. And then the next Sunday night, October 10th, five different homes, Fuad and Rima, who live in Baldwinsville, are hosting a dinner party with their beautiful family. And their theme is It's a Small World, which I think is an international theme also. And so there you go. You get another opportunity. I've eaten in their home. And whoever goes there, you're in for a treat. It's a beautiful home, and the food will be delicious. Um, Same night, Joshua and Lauren Bowers, who live right here in Clay, uh, literally three minutes from our church, they're hosting one. Their theme is tailgate party, so anything that you would enjoy at a football tailgate get-together. Tony and Lee Briggs, who live in Baldensville, are hosting one on the 10th, and their theme is comfort food. So if you like good southern comfort food, this is the place to go. Uh, My wife and I and our girls will be hosting one on the 10th also. Our theme is Backyard Barbecue, so I guarantee you my Weber Grill will be involved. And then the last one, Brandon and Tamara Seymour, who live just down 31 towards Cicero. They're hosting a dinner party, and their theme is Italian Feast. So lots of options, lots of yummy food, lots of time together. And so how do you sign up? Well, it's live. Registration is live. Sorry, but the 9 a.m. service got the jump on you. And so what you'll do is you go to the church website, and there's a big button that says dinner parties, and you click on that, and it'll bring you to a page on the website that looks like this. And here's all the list of the families, the locations, and the themes. You click on the one that you want, and let's say you click on mine and Aaron's, you're going to be brought to a page that looks like this, where it will say our name, so make sure it's the party you want on the night you want, the theme, and there'll be a picture of the family, you can't see it right now, but down lower, 
And all you do is you click on the register button, you sign you and your family up. There are limited spots, of course, at every location. So the sooner you sign up, the more likely you are to get to go to the dinner party of your choosing. Now listen, don't do it during my sermon, please. Like have a little self-control. I, I can just sense all the eagerness and excitement in the room. There's just all this palpable, how can I get on here and pick my favorite dinner party? Uh, just wait, God will keep that door open for you, I think. And uh, as soon as you get to the parking lot, have, have at it. Go in and sign up and choose the dinner party that you want to be uh, a part of. All right. In the early 1990s, there was a youth group leader at a, at a church in Michigan. Her name was Janie. And she came up with this idea for how she was going to help her teenagers think through the decisions that they were making. Uh, she came up with this. She started a grassroots movement. I don't even think she realized that she was going to start one. And this grassroots movement, if you grew up around church in the 90s, you're very familiar with this. Maybe you wore one of these. How many of you in this room would say you, you wore something like this at some point, a WWJD bracelet, right? I'm a kid of the 90s. I grew up in church in the 90s, so I had one of these wrapped around my wrist. Some of you maybe are still wearing it or got it tattooed on your body somewhere. But <laughs> WWJD stands for what would Jesus do? And the idea was that before you do something stupid, you look at your bracelet and you say, what would Jesus do? Well, he wouldn't do this, and so then you don't do it. In reality, what in my experience happened was I'd look at that wrist after I did something stupid, and then I'd be just racked with guilt and shame. Oh, Jesus wouldn't have done that. But this was, this, was a, this was a big movement that happened in the church in the 1990s, and it's a fine question, and of course the idea is to get us to consider what we're doing, but I actually think there's a better question that we need to ask ourselves, and we need to consider, and this is what our new series is called, not what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do? Listen, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, any student of history will admit that Jesus changed the course of history. I mean, completely changed the course of history. For example, here we are 2,000 years after his life, death, and resurrection, and over a third of the world's population worships him as God. And that's pretty big impact. That's a pretty big influence. And we have to ask ourselves, how did he do it? What did Jesus do? How did he change the world? And often we focus on the fact that he came with a life-changing message, and he did. His life-changing message was God is not against you. God is for you. In fact, he sent me as his son to come and live the life you should have lived, to die the death that you should die, to be raised from the dead so that we can have hope in every circumstance and every challenge and beyond every grave that we face. It's called the gospel. It's the good news. It's a life-changing message. But this series is not really about that. This series is not about the life-changing message. It's about his life-changing method. That Jesus didn't just have a message, he had a method, a very specific strategy for how he was going to change the world. And for the next three weeks, we're going to learn that Jesus did three things. He enlisted people, he equipped people, and he entrusted people. But in every case, it was people. I don't know if you've ever had this thought, but, but I've thought before, why did Jesus come back then? Like if Jesus came now with the technology we have, with social media, with the internet, wouldn't it be so much better? I mean, can you imagine Jesus' YouTube channel? <laughs> How many followers he would have? Can you imagine his Facebook page and his Instagram account and his live Instagram stories where he's healing blind people and raising the dead? And, and, and he wouldn't even have to really go anywhere and he could reach the entire world through technology and through the internet. And our job would be so much easier. We don't have to talk to people. 
We can just share his videos on our Facebook accounts. We can just retweet his famous teachings. We can just text out links to different places he's going to be and things he's going to do. And in fact, we wouldn't even need to leave our homes. We wouldn't have to deal with the messiness of people. We could just change the world from a distance. But that's why he didn't come now. See, that's the point and the problem. Jesus didn't come to change the world from a distance. He came to choose people, to love people, to be close to people. John 1.14 says that Jesus wrapped himself in flesh. He became flesh and he lived among us. Not outside of us, not from a distance, but right in the midst of us. Jesus wrapped himself in the human experience and surrounded himself with humans. The message translation says that he moved into our neighborhood, right where we are at. And this is what Jesus did. He got near people and he chose people. In Romans 5.6 says that Jesus Christ came at the exact right time in history. And this is why I want you to consider this morning, that Jesus came at a time in history, 2,000 years ago, when the only way his story and his life and his teachings and his work was going to be spread throughout the world was through people, talking to other people. There was no other option. There wasn't the printing press, let alone the internet, right? So there was no way for the story of Jesus to get out unless people said, I'm going to tell other people about it. Jesus' story spread throughout the known world one conversation at a time. And I believe that he's still doing the same. He's enlisting people to do his work. We're going to learn three things this morning about the people that Jesus enlisted. And the first thing is this, is that Jesus didn't enlist the many. Jesus enlisted the few. In Luke chapter 6, it says that Jesus, in these days, he went out to the mountain to pray And at night, he continued in prayer to God. Here's Jesus. He's got a big decision to make. And so he spends the whole night in prayer. And if Jesus, the son of God, needs to spend a night in prayer before making a big decision, I think you and I could spend a few moments in prayer before we make decisions. And when the day came, he called his disciples and he chose from them. So look, at he has a bunch of disciples. But out of the group, he picks the 12, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, who were called the, they were the sons of Zebedee, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, which means he was part of a group of Jewish people who thought that military force would help them fight against Rome, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. I always think that this Judas, for the rest of his life, was like, I'm not, I'm this Judas, I'm not that Judas. I'm Judas, the, I'm Judas, the son of James. Uh, here Jesus is choosing his 12 apostles. Uh, Jesus had many disciples. It says it right there in the text. He had many followers. In fact, there's a story where Jesus sends out 72 disciples to do ministry. So we know he at least had 72 people who were following him. But we also know that after Jesus ascended to heaven and he told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Spirit, there were 120 people waiting in the upper room. So when we think of Jesus, we often think of his 12 apostles, but Jesus had many disciples, many women followed him and supported him, and many men did as well. But out of that group, Jesus enlisted a few. I wondered sometimes, why did Jesus only choose 12? I mean... He had a pretty important message to get out. He had a pretty big work to do. Why not enlist 120 people? Doesn't it seem like more would be better than a few? But here's the thing. Jesus didn't come to earth just to give us information, just to give us insight, just to give us advice. Jesus came to earth to give us himself. And he knew I cannot give myself to many. He was a human, just like you and I. 
He could not give himself to many. How many of you learned you cannot have very intimate, close relationships with an unlimited amount of people? Some of you have the capacity to have one great friendship. Some of you have the capacity to maybe have five great friendships. But no one has the capacity to have really deep, meaningful, profound friendships, you know, in mass. It's a few. And Jesus was saying, I'm here to give myself to these men. And if I'm going to give myself to these men in a way that they can then give themselves to others in the future and continue my work, I have to choose a few. Because Jesus wasn't after just sort of being known and knowing us. Jesus was after intimacy, closeness. And there's a limitation to how many people we can be close to. And Jesus chose these 12 because he knew that he could pour his life into these 12 for three years and then entrust them with his work to go and do the same. And I just want to pause and say that Jesus still wants this from you and me, closeness. Jesus is not in our lives to be our consultant, that we kind of go to him when we run into a crisis. Jesus is not the genie in the bottle. We rub him when we're in, we rub the, we rub the lamp when, when we're in trouble. Jesus is not someone that we just are supposed to think of on Sundays and sing about on Sundays and the rest of the week. Jesus wants to be close. He wants us to know his heartbeat. He wants intimacy with us. And he also wants to give us himself. You know, we pray at times, God, give me peace. Give me joy. Um, give me hope. Don't ever pray, give me patience, because you won't like how he does it. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't just give us those things. Jesus is those things. The scripture says he is our peace. So there's no peace from Christ without receiving all of who he is. And sometimes we just kind of want bits and pieces of him, but we don't want all of him, because if we have all of him, it puts demands on who we are and how we live, and we prefer to live our lives demands-free. So we'll take your blessings, but... We don't want to hear the things that you have to say to our lives as our king and our Lord. Jesus knew that there are people who he could not entrust himself to. And this past week, as a church, we've been reading through the Gospels, and we're in the Gospel of John right now. And I think it was Wednesday or Thursday, we were in John chapter 2. And there is a three-verse portion at the end of John 2 that I must have read before, but I didn't remember it. And it says that when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, look at not a few but many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. People saw him opening the eyes of the blind. They saw him healing people who were crippled. And they saw him turn water into wine. And they, they saw him feed the crowds. And they're like, oh, my goodness, I, I, I believe. Many believed. But then look what the next verse says. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. This like jumped out at me when I was reading it this week because I was preparing for this message. And I was thinking Jesus had many people who believed because they saw the signs, but he did not give himself to many. He gave himself to a few. And because he knew the human heart. And what he knew about the human heart was this, that the human heart is so intuitively and inherently selfish that when we come across someone like Jesus, when we come across the idea of a God, we immediately ask ourselves, what's in it for me? What do I get out of this? And there are a lot of people who followed, they were fans of Jesus, but not followers of Jesus. They loved being fed by him, and they loved the cool tricks that he could do, and the healings, and they loved all that sort of stuff, and they thought his teaching was interesting, and he was a great storyteller. But in John chapter 6, when Jesus started saying things that were hard for people to hear, the whole crowd left. And Jesus turned to the 12, the few, and he said in John 6, are you going to leave me too? And Peter said, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. 
Peter didn't say, where else are we going to go? No one makes bread and fish like you, Jesus. <laughs> where else are we going to go? You're the best show in town. Peter said, where else are we going to go? The life we need is found in you, in you alone. All week, I've, since I read this verse, I've been praying this prayer. God, make me a person that you can entrust yourself to. Jesus, can you entrust yourself to me? Or am I just in it for what I can get out of it? Jesus enlisted the few. But what is this, before we get to the next point, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, let me just say this is what this means for you. This will set some of you free. Some of us are waiting for God to give us a moment to do something enormous, something grandiose, something large. Some of us are saying, God, help me reach the crowds. But all we have to do is faithfully invest in the few. You don't have to reach the masses. You don't have to reach the crowds. Find a few people that you're willing to give your life to and pour your life into. Jesus enlisted the few. Secondly, Jesus enlisted the fringe. You know, when Jesus walked around, he would go up to these men and he would say, come and follow me. And, and they would leave their boats and they would leave their place of work and they would just follow, follow Jesus. Has anyone ever read that and thought that's strange? Well, that's strange. These, these men would just leave what they're supposed to do, all their responsibilities, things that their fathers had taught them to do, and just start following Jesus. But actually at this time, it was not weird for rabbis to ask students to follow them. This was normal. Jewish rabbis would go around and they would look for young men specifically who were the cream of the crop, who were the elites, who were the best, because rabbis wanted to have the best disciples. It's like picking a team at recess. You want to have the strongest team so you look the best and so that you can win. And so rabbis would find these young men and they would begin to test them and they would ask them questions about their knowledge of the Torah and whether or not they knew how to interpret it and apply it. And when a young man showed himself to be worthy, the way that they knew they were selected, the, new, the, the way that they knew that they had made the cut, the way that they knew had, that they had made the team, my, my youngest, or not my youngest, my oldest daughter tried out for a Liverpool modified uh, soccer team and she got an envelope and inside the envelope it was a letter that said, congratulations, you've been selected, you're a part of the team. We were so excited for her. But the way that people were selected back then by rabbis was a rabbi would look at you and say, follow me. Come and follow me. And so when Jesus said, come and follow me, it really wasn't as weird as it seems. It's not as weird as it would be today. But what was weird was who he invited. These are not impressive men. These are fishermen in many cases, which means they were laborers. They were not educated. Look at who he chose, Peter, to be the leader of the whole group. Peter was prone to emotional outbursts. He was angry. Peter had chronic foot and mouth disease. Anyone have that disease? Always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. James and John were volatile. They were ambitious. They were vengeful. They saw some people they didn't like, and they're like, Jesus, you want us to call fire down on these people? I mean, these are the people <laughs> that Jesus selected and he called. You have Thomas, who has a history of questioning and doubting and not trusting. You have Matthew, who was a tax collector, hated by the Jews, used by the Romans, could compromise his entire course of his life to get rich. And Jesus said, come and follow me. You have James and Thaddeus, who were zealots, which means that they were people who thought that they could eventually grab the sword and defeat the Romans. And if you've seen the show, The Chosen at all, I feel one of the things that show captures so well is the dynamic of the disciples and how they didn't like each other. Because you had someone who was a former tax collector and someone who was a zealot and someone who was a pacifist and someone who was a... And Jesus got this ragtag group of guys together and they, were, they would be defined as the fringe. You know what I mean when I say the fringe, right? 
These are the outsiders. They're the outcasts. They're not the first-round draft picks. They're not who we would choose. But here's what I love about Jesus and the way he chooses to enlist people. He sees people, and I want some of you need to hear this for yourself this morning. He sees things in you you don't see in yourself. He would call them by names that they didn't actually have yet, and in doing so, he'd speak a word over their life and say, you're not going to be this, you're going to be this. And I'm telling you, some of you have had terrible words spoken over your life by people that should have spoken life to you, parents and family members and teachers and friends, but God has the final word on your life. And when God looks at you and speaks a word over you, it can change the entire course of your life. And Jesus saw them not for who they were, but for who he knew they could be. Jesus trusted in the time that he would, he knew that these guys are far from finished, but if I will pour my life into them for three and a half years, every waking hour, showing them the ways of the kingdom, he knew that their lives could be transformed. Jesus enlisted the fringe. Now this, this means three things for you and I. It's good news, it's humbling news, and it's an important reminder. The good news is he can choose you. He can use you. You don't have to be impressive. You don't have to be an insider. You don't have to be popular. You don't have to be famous. In fact, those things usually get in the way. You just have to be available. God, I'm available. Here I am. Speak to me. Choose me. Use me. Send me. And spend me. However you choose. So the good news is you don't have to be amazing. The humbling news is if God chooses you, it has nothing to do with you. (laughs) So Christians, listen, Christians should simultaneously be the most secure, confident people on earth, but also the most humble people on earth. The same time. We're confident because we're secure in what Christ has done for us, but we're humble because he did it for us. We didn't do it for ourselves. Prideful arrogance in the life of a Christian, the way that they talk to others and treat others, is an indicator that they don't really understand what Jesus did for them. They're, they're pretty impressed with themselves instead of being impressed with Jesus. So it's good news, it's humbling news. And then lastly, it's an important reminder. And here's the important reminder. When you look for the few that you're going to pour your life into, and I'm praying that all of us will do this, all of us that are followers of Jesus. When you look for the few, who am I going to give myself to? Who am I going to carve my life up and give it away to other people? Who are they going to be? Don't forget to look at the fringes. Don't just go after the popular, the people who are going to make you look good, the people who make you feel good about yourself. But say, God, who, is you, who have you positioned before me? And give your life to the fringes. And the last thing that we see is that Jesus enlisted the faithful. These few people, these 12 men, these fringe people, they turned the world upside down. We're here this morning because they took the message of Jesus around the world. I mean, ultimately, it's the work of Jesus that matters most. But if the disciples and his apostles hadn't taken his work around the world, we wouldn't even know about it. We're here because here's what these men did. This was all they did. It's going to sound very simple. They did for others what had been done for them. Jesus poured his life into them for three years, and then they went and began to pour their lives into others. You know what that's called? That's a, that's a churchy term, but it's discipleship. I'm going to pour my life into you the way Jesus has poured his life into me. And in doing so, we're going to learn how to find and follow Jesus in every area of our lives. And this is, what we're, this is our mission at Trinity is to make disciples for the glory of our God and the good of our community. And guess what? We didn't make that mission up. That's the mission Jesus gave every single one of his followers in Matthew 28. It's called the Great Commission. As you go throughout all of life, make disciples, teach them who I am, baptize them, lead them, and guide them into the truth of who Jesus is. 
So we give ourselves to people because Jesus has given himself to us. And Jesus' method is people reaching people. Jesus didn't come with programs and policies and politics. nothing wrong with any of that. But Jesus came looking for people that he could pour his life into who would then go and do the same. Now, I want to show you this. This is something that someone showed me a while back that helped me understand this and wrap my mind around this. I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're going to sing in just a minute. But imagine that there's, we have 10 years to try to reach as many people as we can with the good news of who Jesus is. And there's two distinct approaches. The first approach we'll call the super evangelist. And the super evangelist is someone who goes out and preaches every single day and a thousand people every day of the year place their faith and trust in Jesus. That's amazing. That would be an incredible ministry to have. But on this hand, you have the faithful discipler. And all the faithful discipler does is for 12 months, for 365 days, he or she pours their life into five other people and helps them follow and serve Jesus. Two different models. Well, let's, let's look what happens. In year two, these five people and the original person, they pour their lives into five more, six times five, 30 people. This guy, meanwhile, I mean, he's, he's crushing it. He's going to have a pretty good newsletter to send out. 720,000 people have placed their faith in Jesus in year two. Year three, he goes over a million people reached with the gospel. And meanwhile, this guy's just puttering along at 155 people. Year four, almost one and a half million people. This guy hasn't even reached 1,000 yet, the faithful discipler. Year five, 1.8 million people versus 3,900. Seems like the super evangelist is the way to go. But if you'll just wait five more years, and when you get to year 10, this super evangelist has reached 3.65 million people. Incredible, right? The faithful discipler has reached over 12 million people. Four times the amount. Now, I'm not saying that this is wrong. This is fine. But this was Jesus' method. Not just stand up and preach but pour your life into a few. Listen, some of you are like, I can never stand up and preach. I can never stand on a street corner and talk about Jesus. I can never, that's fine. That's probably not what most of you are called to do, but can you give your life to a few? Can you do what Jesus has done for you? Can you do it for others? Because one day we're gonna stand before Jesus. He's gonna say, what did you do with the one thing I asked you to do? Not go to church on Sundays, not, not tithe, not pray, not be a good person. The one thing he told us to do in Matthew 28 is to make disciples Help other people follow Jesus. Find a few. Pour your life into a few. Find the, look to the fringes. Look to the margins. There's people who need to be loved, who need great friendship, who need a great big brother and a great big sister. And give yourself to them the way Jesus gave himself to you. And look what happens in 10 years. In fact, the numbers, someone else told me this. If every person on the face of the earth right now that calls themselves a Christian would just disciple two people a year, we'd reach the entire world's population in 32 years. Two people a year. The truth is a lot of people come to church and they get something for themselves and they try to hold on to it till next Sunday when they can come back and get something for themselves. That's called being a consumer. But we're not called to be consumers, we're called to be contributors. We gather here for strength and to be reminded of what matters most, but when we scatter, that's when the real work of the believer begins. Carving our lives up and giving it away and pouring ourselves into many to reach the world. This is the power of multiplication. This is disciples making disciples. This is the brilliance of Jesus' method. 
he enlisted people, he enlisted the few, he enlisted the fringe, and he enlisted the faithful, those who would go and do the same. And years later, when the Apostle Paul was trying to explain to Timothy how this works, his spiritual son, he said, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I want you to see this. There's four generations of discipleship here. Paul to Timothy to faithful men to others. And that's what we're called to do. To whatever God has given us is to give it away to others so that they can then go and do the same and reach the world for Jesus. Let's pray together this morning. God, I pray that you would help us to not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, to respond. If you're here this morning and you are a disciple of Jesus, the question for you is, who are you entrusting the grace of Jesus to? Who are you entrusting the grace of Jesus to? Who are you pouring your life into? If you're here this morning and this is all new to you, you're not a you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian or a follower of Jesus. I hope that what you're hearing is, is that Jesus loves you. He wants a relationship with you. And he has a plan and purpose for your life. Jesus, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning by your spirit. And seal this word to our hearts to change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and we're going to close with this song.